everyone. I'm Sam. And I'm Sean. And this is Key to the Case. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us once again. I wanted to give a special thank you to those of you who have told a friend or family member or coworker or anyone really about the show. I keep neglecting to say that, but it really helps us grow and reach a broader audience, which we always want to do. So thank you. I want to note um, right away that NBC's Dateline covered the case we're talking about today in 2011. So you will hear me reference that coverage throughout because it provided some information that I couldn't find anywhere else. All right, let's get into it. Teresa Insana was 26 years old at the time of her murder in 2004. Teresa was born and raised in Niagara Falls, New York, and she grew up with a brother named Christopher. It was just the two of them until Teresa was 10 years old when her younger sister, Mary Beth, was born. Despite that 10-year age gap, Teresa and Mary Beth formed a close relationship and Mary Beth looked up to Teresa. Teresa's parents actively participated in their church and Teresa attended mass each week growing up. Teresa is described as a loving, loyal, friendly, hardworking, and smart individual. She graduated from Niagara Falls High School in 1996 and promptly headed to college at the State University of New York, or SUNY, at Binghamton, located several hours away from Niagara Falls. It was no surprise when Teresa joined a sorority since she was naturally social, and then she quickly decided to major in psychology. Having earned her bachelor's degree in 2000, Teresa found herself without a concrete plan for the future, so she moved back home to Niagara Falls to live with her family. While she didn't intend to stay for an extended period, Teresa needed some time to determine her next steps. Teresa's parents told NBC's Dateline that during this period, Teresa was going out a lot, staying out late and sleeping in. So her parents really encouraged her to find a direction in life, and so she did. Teresa had recently visited Las Vegas, Nevada, and absolutely loved it. Those closest to Teresa said that she felt compelled to start a life out there. In June 2000, Teresa made the big move across the country, but she wasn't alone. Her close friend, Melissa, who also loved Las Vegas, moved out with her. Teresa had confidence that she would succeed in Las Vegas. When the pair arrived, they immediately started looking for jobs, and Teresa landed a sales job working for the Rio Hotel and Casino. Teresa's dad said, quote, she made the perfect salesperson. She was also an in-house psychologist. Her colleagues found her a very loving and caring person, end quote. While Teresa worked in the sales department, she met a man named Jeff, about two years after she moved to Vegas, and they started a relationship. Their relationship moved swiftly, and they got engaged in 2002 after just two to three months of dating. Teresa was seemingly in love with Jeff and couldn't have been more excited about the engagement. They got a dog, a cocker spaniel named Frankie, and they moved in together in the Summerlin area of Las Vegas. That's a really quick engagement. Relative to us, we we waited five years until we got engaged. I mean, obviously, we talked about marriage before that, and it was pretty much inevitable. But yeah, two to three months seems very fast. Do you know if there was a reason why they wanted to get married so quickly? I don't 
necessarily think there was a specific reason behind the speed in which they got engaged. I'm kind of thinking, based on what we know about Jeff, that this might be a pattern for him, that he moves quickly. He actually was already married and divorced before he met Teresa or before they started their relationship. And then we'll learn about another relationship later. So maybe this is his pattern. I don't know exactly. But yeah, I don't think there was a specific reason that they wanted to get engaged um, within a couple of months. Maybe they just felt it was right and they were ready. So why not? Teresa's family and friends got a good first impression about Jeff, but they noticed that he always seemed to be sick. He was often stressed and he stayed home a lot, whereas Teresa was very social and liked to go out. So in some ways, he held her back from the life she wanted because she wasn't just going to leave him behind all the times. She would often stay home with him. But in a heartbreaking turn of events, Jeff broke up with Teresa just weeks before their wedding in March 2004. Teresa was taken aback and crushed by Jeff's actions, although as she had time to reflect on their relationship, she began to reveal to some of her friends that maybe it was for the best. Teresa mentioned how there was an instance where she saw a woman's name from work come up on their phone's caller ID And she thought it was a little suspicious at the time, a little odd, but she didn't make too much of it. Well, as it turned out, Jeff got into a relationship with this very woman shortly after he broke up with Teresa, and her name is Melissa. Okay, couple clarifications. This new Melissa, or this Melissa you just mentioned is not this her friend Melissa, right? Right. The friend she moved out there, good catch, um, was also named Melissa, but not the same person. Okay. And the second one, Jeff knew Melissa and Teresa all worked together, right? At the same place? Yes, they did all work together. And I think this created a weird tension. I imagine that had to be a really uncomfortable dynamic. So in their specific work environment, do you know if they were consistently interacting or if you know it was easily avoidable to to not interact with each other? I did not get the impression that it was easily avoidable. I don't know the extent of how much they're working together, but even if they weren't working together frequently, I think they were still seeing each other a lot. And I think some people might even leave their job because of a situation like that. However, Teresa made it work. She she did heavily consider moving back to Niagara Falls, but then she was promoted to sales manager about a month before she was murdered, and this made her stay. Of course, after the breakup, Jeff moved out of the apartment they shared together, and at the time of Teresa's murder, Jeff and Melissa were engaged. So again, that's what, kind of what I was talking about with this possible pattern um, on Jeff's part of moving quickly because, I don't know, I would think if I were engaged to someone after a few months and they were engaged for a while and then I broke up with them before the wedding, I I would think I would need some time to move on. Whereas with Jeff, um, he quickly moved into that relationship with Melissa. So it kind of just seems like a pattern with him. Teresa and Jeff maintained a civil relationship that was possibly a little more like a friendship She asked Jeff to stay at her home to watch her dog when she had to work overnight on a few rare occasions, and he agreed. 
I don't fully understand the circumstances of their relationship, but I believe this was their dog together before the breakup. And then she kept the dog. So it may have been convenient for him to watch the dog at times because the dog, Frankie, would have already been familiar with Jeff. Yeah. I'm just thinking about Brownie, our dog. You know, maybe Jeff was the only other person that the dog could interact with, you know, and not not act like Brownie would if a stranger tried to watch Brownie. <laughs> right. Yeah. He's politely. very selective yeah. about who he accepts. It could be a situation like that. I'm not really sure. So despite the heartbreak, Teresa initially felt after the breakup, before her murder, she seemed to have moved on from Jeff and she was reportedly doing just fine. When a friend came to visit Teresa about five months before her murder, she shared a strange detail. Teresa had noticed that sometimes when she got home from work, her DVD player would be on or the TV would be on a different channel than she had it on before work. Teresa confided in her friend that she couldn't quite pinpoint it, but something was off. Sorry, I want to interject. Is this the same apartment that her and Jeff lived in? Yes, Jeff moved out of that. Okay. This is an interesting part of this case because we never find out if these observations she made had anything to do with her murder. And I wasn't really sure what to make of this. I mean, I'm thinking if she told her friend about this, it must have happened multiple times, enough to where she would notice and think something was strange. I think if I experienced something like this once or twice, I probably wouldn't even mention it to anyone. I would just come up with some logical reason for why it happened. But if this happened on multiple occasions, you know, maybe even a handful of times and she's telling her friend, then it starts to become a little harder to explain it away. Although Teresa had an uneasy feeling, she didn't change her locks or have a security system installed and she didn't move away either. Her friend told Dateline that the neighborhood she lived in was safe and family-oriented. On another occasion, Teresa told a co-worker that she thought someone had been following her to her car. I believe this was after work, and then the person backed off. So obviously knowing that Teresa ends up being murdered, you have to wonder if any of these events had anything to do with what ultimately happened to her. Tuesday, October 26, 2004, was an ordinary workday for Teresa, except for the fact that she left a little bit early to go vote. Once she got home, she walked her dog, cooked dinner, and then settled in for the night. She attempted to call one of her friends around 6.30 p.m., but the friend missed the call, so Teresa left a voicemail. Next, she called her mom and spoke with her and, and her sister as well. Her sister was a teenager at the time, so she still lived at home and they were able to all talk at the same time. Teresa said that she was going to eat and that she was tired, but nothing significant was discussed during that phone call. This would be the last time anyone spoke with Teresa besides the killer. About an hour after Teresa called her friend, around 7.30, this friend called her back, but Teresa did not answer. There's also mention of Teresa's cousin attempting to call her at that time. It's a little unclear if they both tried to call or what. It's probable that what happened Teresa, though, had already begun at that point. The following day, Teresa didn't show up to work, which was an uncommon occurrence for Teresa. If she needed to miss work, she would tell someone. 
but evidently her manager and coworkers brushed off their concerns for that first day. I don't know why they didn't attempt to check on her since she was normally so reliable. I can only imagine that they didn't want to overreact. When Teresa failed to show up the next day, the alarm bells went off and two of her coworkers, including her ex-fiance, Jeff, went to Teresa's home to check on her. They were able to enter Teresa's apartment through an unlocked sliding back patio door and they came across a strange scene with the first red flag being that Teresa's dog was found shut away in a room inside Teresa's apartment. A detective said that this would be a mortal sin in Teresa's eyes since she was a responsible dog owner. And I think it was especially concerning because Teresa hadn't shown up for work the day prior. So they were probably wondering how long the dog was shut away like that. Items such as Teresa's car, purse, keys, and cell phone were all at the home. Items you'd expect to be there if Teresa were there, but she was not. Since Teresa was nowhere in sight, Jeff and Teresa's other colleague called the police and the Las Vegas Metro Police Department started an investigation into Teresa's disappearance. I find it a little interesting that Jeff volunteered to go. I mean, I get it. He he may be worried, but still a little odd that her ex-fiance volunteers to go check on her. Yeah, I see where you're coming from. I think I looked at it as he knew where she lived, and I don't know if the other coworkers knew where Teresa lived, and he could easily show them, you know, exactly which apartment she lived in because they were familiar with it and everything. And I, I guess they still had a kind of a, I don't know if I'd call it a friendship. They just had some connection still. The police notified Teresa's family with the news and her mom and dad flew out to Las Vegas the next day and assisted in the search efforts. They were understandably alarmed and one of Teresa's friends, the one who actually tried to call Teresa back the night she disappeared, shared that she knew in her heart that something bad happened to Teresa. But she and Teresa's family still prayed for her safe return. Teresa's neighborhood was canvassed, which included the use of bloodhounds and cadaver dogs. While the search went on, homicide detectives looked for evidence in Teresa's home. There were no obvious signs of forced entry. And as I said before, Jeff and Teresa's other coworker got in through the unlocked sliding back patio door. That doesn't necessarily mean that's how someone got into Teresa's apartment. That could have been how they left. We don't know, but I should note that this was the type of apartment complex where, you know, just anybody could walk up to Teresa's front door. She had a ground level apartment. It was two levels, but uh, the entrance was on the ground level. So her apartment was two floors is, is what you're saying. She didn't have anyone above her. Yes, that's correct. No one lived above Teresa as far as I could tell. Teresa's father said in the past that because there were no signs of forced entry, whoever came into her home was likely someone she knew. At least in his opinion, that's what he believed. Nothing was stolen from Teresa's home, which helped investigators rule out robbery as a motive. However, there were signs of a struggle in Teresa's apartment. So as we said, the Teresa's apartment was two levels and there was a small piece of metal found on the staircase as well as a footprint that was larger than Teresa's shoe size. 
on the second level, there was a half bathroom. And in this bathroom, there were small amounts of blood found on the mirror and near a baseboard. A towel rack or rod that should have been affixed to the wall had been knocked or torn out of the wall, including the bracket. This picture starts to form that maybe someone came into Teresa's apartment, attacked her, shut her dog in a room, and a struggle ensued. Investigators looked at Teresa's car for any additional clues, and upon further examination, the car told its own story. There was a smear of blood on the trunk area of Teresa's car, which indicated that Teresa could have been in the trunk of her own vehicle at one point. Inside the trunk, there was a little bit of mud and a little more blood. The investigators observed that the driver's seat of Teresa's car was pushed far back in a position that would not be suitable for someone of Teresa's size. She was only about five feet tall. This is a small detail, but I think it's important. When I hear about this in other cases, a car's seat position being adjusted dramatically different from what would be appropriate for the car's owner, it's a red flag. I mean, I got the car I have now eight or nine months ago, and I haven't adjusted the seat once (laughs) since I got it in the right position. I just always think it's alarming. And there's a possibility that Teresa could have adjusted it, but this detail combined with the blood on the vehicle, paints a disturbing tableau of what unfolded. Additionally, it appeared to investigators that the person responsible for what happened to Teresa cleaned up the scene. There were trash bags, paper towels, and cleaning supplies out in Teresa's kitchen. This part of the case was reminiscent of our fourth episode, Bridget Phillips. In that murder, the killer attempted to clean the scene, and we talked about how unusual that was. It is atypical for an offender to remain at the scene to tidy up. And in Teresa's case, it suggested that the perpetrator was well acquainted with her routines and patterns, clearly aware that she resided alone. Otherwise, they would have faced the potential of someone entering the residence while they were there. So there's pretty clearly uh, a struggle that took place with the uh, towel rack being ripped out of the wall. Knowing that there was a struggle, I'm assuming that Teresa was, you know, shouting, yelling, making making some noise uh, while this attack happened. So, you know, it, it's weird in the first place to stay and clean up, but it makes it even weirder that you know, knowing there's a struggle and Teresa, I'm assuming she's being loud. It makes it even weirder that they stayed to clean up after there was a struggle. Oh, yeah. You would think that they would want to get out of there as fast as possible. They had this strange calmness about them. They weren't rushing around. So, yeah, I would be fearful that someone may have heard her screaming and and want to get out of there right away. And I don't know if her neighbors were home. And I want to talk about that more later. But that is another strange part of this case. Like, no one heard anything and no one saw anything. Six days after Teresa was last known to be alive, on November 1st, 2004, Teresa's body was discovered by construction workers under a culvert between three and four miles away or about five and a half kilometers away from her home. These construction workers were scheduled to work on the culvert when they noticed something wrapped in blankets and towels only to realize it was a body. 
During his Dateline interview, cold case detective with the Las Vegas Metro PD, Ken Hefner explained that at the time of Teresa's murder, this culvert was on the outskirts of the southwest area of the Las Vegas Valley, which was developing quickly. The location could be accessed by developed roads, but he shared that the surrounding areas were full of land being leveled for development. I'll share pictures of this location to our Instagram, Key to the Case podcast, and you'll be able to see that the culvert was surrounded by rocks. You'd have to walk down this 25-foot rocky embankment to get where she was. The investigators indicated that getting down to where Teresa's body was left just to view it was a precarious journey. So they began to question if someone helped the killer place Teresa's body there. They seemed to believe pretty firmly that the act of killing was a solo one, but the disposing of her body could have required two people. Given Teresa's petite stature, though, it's not entirely implausible that someone could have transported her there alone, but it would have been considerably easier if the killer had assistance from someone else. Teresa's body was bound with rope and duct tape that did not belong to her, and the medical examiner who conducted the autopsy classified Teresa's cause of death as strangulation and blunt force trauma. It was inconclusive if Teresa was sexually assaulted. There were some signs that she might have been, which prompts two possibilities, either Teresa was sexually assaulted or the killer wanted it to appear that way. Once investigators saw what Teresa was wearing, they were able to link that small metal piece that was found on the stairs inside our home to the top she had on. They also determined the blankets and towels she was found wrapped in belonged to her. Once Teresa's family learned the news, they were devastated. Teresa's brother said that he will never forget the moment the family received that phone call and he still gets chills thinking about it. Teresa was such a loved and valued member of the family, and they would never be the same without her. More than 300 people bid farewell at a mass of Christian burial back in New York, which underscored the many lives Teresa touched. Teresa's apartment front door overflowed with flowers and candles from her friends and coworkers in Las Vegas, and a number of prayer vigils were held for her. Before the construction workers found Teresa's body, the investigators had already formulated their theory of what likely happened and the discovery of her body tied the pieces together. They believed that someone entered Teresa's apartment between 6.30 and 7.30 p.m. And this time frame is because of her last known contact with her mom and the call she missed around 7.30. Once the offender entered her apartment, possibly through the unlocked back door, he attacked Teresa and they struggled up the stairs ending up in the half bathroom. In the bathroom, Teresa fought her attacker, knocking the towel rack off in the midst. He likely killed her in the bathroom, then used her car to drive to the culvert and dispose of her body. He then returned to her apartment with her car, went inside, cleaned up, and left. So they had the story piece together, and one of the only questions that remained was who killed Teresa. One detail I'm curious about, though, we've kind of talked about it, is the time the killer most likely struck between 6.30 and 7.30 p.m., in my opinion, this seems like a risky time for the killer to choose for a few reasons. One, she lives in an apartment complex where I imagine there's a 
lot of activity, people coming home from work and such in that hour, you're more likely to have witnesses who could see you in the vicinity. It also makes me think that he had a level of confidence that he'd be able to get into her apartment. You would not want to be seen fidgeting with the door. So you'd need to know that you could get in quickly. That's where I'm kind of stuck on right now. Teresa lives by herself and I just don't see her leaving the, the back door unlocked where someone could enter. I think it's someone that she knew and was let in. Yes, that's interesting. Um, do you think the back door would just, that's how he left her apartment? Because that was unlocked when the coworkers showed up. So what are you thinking about the back door? Yeah, it would have to be where they left, right? If, if they didn't the only... get in that way, yeah. Yeah. So you're thinking what Teresa's dad was thinking, that she let this person into her home. Or it could have been a situation where this person even just knocked on the door Teresa opened the door and then he forced his way in. So not necessarily her welcoming this person into her home, but she could have at least opened the door. But I suppose it's possible too that she did leave her back door unlocked. It could have been just a simple mistake. She she was known to sit out on her back patio a lot. So it could have been that she just forgot to lock it on her way in. But secondly, the other reason why I think this is a strange time to attack Beyond just witnesses who could see him, there's the risk that someone could hear her. Like we talked about, more people are awake at this hour than, say, 2 a.m., for example. And thirdly, between 6.30 and 7.30 p.m., you lose the element of surprise. Therese was likely fully awake, so you don't have the element of attacking, you know, when she's disoriented either. So this leads me to believe that there was a reason he chose this time or the time is wrong, or he simply just had confidence that he could be stealthy. I say all of this, yet, as I already said, there were no witnesses who saw or heard anything strange that night. The blood found in Teresa's bathroom and the blood on the rear of Teresa's car were both tested and it was determined that the blood on the car belonged to Teresa. It likely transferred there when the killer put her body in the trunk. The blood in the bathroom, on the other hand, did not belong to Teresa and investigators received a full male profile from the blood. Investigators theorized that during the struggle in the bathroom, Teresa fought back, and it's possible that the towel rack that came off the wall knocked into the offender and caused a small amount of blood loss that ended up on the mirror and the baseboard. There was blood found on Teresa's shirt, and this too was confirmed to be male DNA, which came from the same individual who left the DNA in the bathroom. The National DNA Database, CODIS, was checked for a match to the DNA found at the scene, and there was no match. But having the offender's DNA is promising. Most people who are murdered are murdered by someone they know. So police began a deeper examination into Teresa's life, and they started with her ex-fiance, Jeff, and his new partner, Melissa. As you may recall, they all worked together at the Rio Hotel and Casino. Jeff and Melissa were brought into the police station and were questioned separately. You can actually hear excerpts of their interviews and the Dateline coverage of this case, so that was helpful to me. Jeff and Melissa both had an alibi for the period in which police believed Teresa was murdered. 
They were out shopping for a car together, and this was confirmed through the car salesman and the dealership they went to. But still, investigators were interested in Jeff and Melissa because of that past between Jeff and Teresa and the dynamic with Melissa. When police first questioned Jeff and Melissa, they requested DNA samples from both of them to be tested against the DNA left behind by the killer. When questioned by police, Jeff indicated that he had nothing to do with Teresa's murder. A friend of Teresa's reported that Teresa told her that she got into an argument with Jeff shortly before her murder, but the friend didn't really recall any details. She was just kind of consoling Teresa about the situation. When Jeff was asked about this spat, he claimed that they never had an argument. This wasn't true. The location where Teresa was found was curious to police as it was just two miles away from Jeff's home. But again, he and Melissa had a solid alibi. How did Jeff initially respond to to the news of hearing about Teresa's murder? Well, investigators were a little skeptical of Jeff's response to learning that she was murdered because he had been characterized as this high-strung and anxious person, but Jeff displayed remarkable composure during interactions with the police, and the investigators pushed him on this. There's a point during the question when Jeff says something along the lines of, this is really upsetting, in a monotone voice, and the investigator didn't understand why there was no emotion behind the statement. It's kind of like when someone says, that's so funny. (laughs) Yet they don't laugh or smile. You know, like you can tell they don't actually think it's funny. Jeff's explanation was that he hadn't processed the situation yet, which I think is a fair response. He's probably in shock. He also explained that he was taking anxiety medication and that could have played into his response. Couldn't all this questioning of Jeff been avoided or streamlined if they just if you just went ahead and gave them a sample of his DNA so they could cross-check it with what they found in the bathroom that wasn't Teresa's blood? Yeah. Because it's pretty clearly the killer's blood, right? Yes. So, I mean, they had a sample from Jeff, but it, it took a while to get the results back, and we'll get to that. So I think the idea is that they don't know yet, even though he has this solid alibi, they don't know what the results are going to come back as um, once they do that DNA test. So they probably want to question him up front in the event that it is a match. They'd want to question him outright. Police turned to Melissa, Jeff's new fiance. Melissa confirmed Jeff's alibi and she told investigators, quote, there's no way in hell he would ever hurt that woman, end quote. The that woman part of the statement would later be scrutinized and viewed as distancing language or detachment. Melissa admitted that she was not keen on Jeff sleeping over at Teresa's home to watch her dog. She went on to say that when Teresa and Jeff were together, Teresa made Jeff feel guilty about a number of things, and Melissa believed she was continuing to do that. It appeared that possibly Melissa worried that Teresa was actually at the apartment when Jeff was over there or that Teresa was attempting to work Jeff back into her life. So there seemed to be a lot of insecurities on Melissa's part with this relationship, which I think is natural. I mean, think about how their relationship started. I mean, his relationship with Teresa, it seemed like had barely ended when he started his relationship with Melissa. So I can see why 
you know, if you're Melissa in this situation, why you would feel insecure about your boyfriend or your fiance going over to their ex's house. Like that would just kind of be uncomfortable. Police questioned Melissa's responses as well. They felt that her behavior did not align with how a concerned coworker would respond. However, Melissa attempted to empathize with Teresa's position and admitted how it would have been hard to be dropped the way Jeff dropped her. Melissa and Jeff both participated in polygraph exams, and they both showed deception when asked if they caused Teresa's death and if they knew Teresa was dead before she was found. Melissa got upset during her polygraph exam, and she quickly left. It was revealed in the Dayline coverage of the case that Melissa had recently learned she was pregnant just days before Teresa's murder. Also, records show that Melissa and Jeff got married just a month after Teresa was murdered. The timing seems strange to be in the mindset to get married, but it's conceivable that they expedited the marriage process after Melissa learned she was pregnant, although I can't prove that. that that's not clear. Over a year after Teresa was murdered, the DNA from the crime scene comparison to Jeff and Melissa's DNA finally came back from the crime lab, and it was not a match to Jeff or Melissa. Okay, so yeah, that, that kind of answers my question before. I didn't know it would take a, over a year for that, I know. For that you know yeah. analysis to happen. Yeah, there was a big backup, I think, at the crime lab. So investigators were sitting around for a year, probably wondering if Jeff was their guy or not. And they find out he's not. And I mean, we already knew Melissa. It wasn't Melissa. She obviously wouldn't be a male DNA profile. So it could not belong to her, but they had to rule her out. Like I said, it was clear from the Dateline coverage that before those results came back, the investigation was focused on Jeff and Melissa. And somewhat frustratingly, very few other options were discussed or explored. Once they learned that the DNA didn't match, the focus seemed to shift to a theory that Jeff and or Melissa hired someone to kill Teresa. And look, I understand the investigators have way more information than we do, but as an outsider looking at this, their DNA doesn't match. They had alibis. I don't see much of a motive from Jeff's perspective. He apparently moved on from Teresa. So what would he gain from her being dead? I suppose if Teresa were out of the picture, Melissa's relationship with Jeff would operate more smoothly, but there's no evidence that I'm aware of that they hired someone to do this. Jeff and Melissa have never been charged with a crime related to Teresa's murder. I don't think it's totally out of the question that someone was hired to kill Teresa. I mean, it seemed like Melissa was fairly upset that Teresa was still in Jeff's life in some capacity. On the other hand, it seems like a weird crime situation for a hitman to, you know, strangle her. Usually it's usually it's not that not the MO for a hitman. Usually they're in and out and don't leave a mess to feel like they have to clean it up, which obviously someone did. Yeah, and I think that brings up a good point. When I looked at more recent information about Teresa's case, the cold case detective who has worked on this case with the Las Vegas Metro PD, Ken Hefner, indicated that the hitman theory seems unlikely because 
kind of like you're saying, hitmen don't go through the effort that Teresa's killer did, typically. He said, quote, if they're hired to kill you, they're going to kill you and you're going to be found where you died, end quote. And I agree. I, I thought also the method of killing being strangulation just seemed unusual for a hitman. Like this whole crime does not scream hitman to me. I would um, typically, I think a gun is used or possibly even a stabbing. I suppose a gun, maybe in this case, he wouldn't want to use a gun because it would be loud. But still, this seems very long and drawn out for a hitman. In 2017, 11 years after Teresa was murdered, Yolanda McCleary, a retired senior crime scene analyst with the Las Vegas Metro PD, helped develop a new lead in the case. Yolanda was deeply bothered by Teresa's case and the fact that there was never a match to the DNA left at the crime scene. So she started looking into DNA phenotyping, a process used to predict a person's physical appearance using genetic information from DNA sequencing or genotyping. You can think of it as reverse engineering a person's appearance using DNA. Yolanda was specifically interested in Parabon Nanolabs, a company that specializes in DNA phenotyping. To test the accuracy, she actually had an image or snapshot, as they're often called, created of herself using her DNA, and she said the results were nearly identical to her. Yolanda brought the idea to the lead investigators, and once they agreed to it, Yolanda funded the snapshot of Teresa's killer. We will have this on our Instagram, Key to the Case podcast, and we'll have the link to it in our show notes as well. But the results showed that the killer is believed to be of Filipino descent with brown eyes, dark brown or black hair with light brown skin. It's important to note that this is an approximation of the person's appearance, not an exact image. There's no read on fat cells, right? So the image is just a person of average size. And then, of course, there are other factors such as hair type or texture or, you know, if the killer has a big scar across his face, that could affect his appearance dramatically. And that's obviously not going to be captured in the snapshot. But what this composite does is it allows investigators to rule out people who may have been on their list of suspects or persons of interest because they don't match the physical description. And investigators shared that no one on their list of people they were interested in prior to the composite being created fit the description from Parabon. This is the most promising lead in Teresa's case right now, along with forensic genetic genealogy work, although Detective Hefner has said that one hurdle he's come across is that generally, he said, people of Asian descent are underrepresented in the genealogical database realm, which he suspected could be because they have valued written family records so they don't need to search for this information through other means, but it could be for a number of other reasons too. Interestingly, once the sketch came out, no one in Teresa's life was able to correctly identify who this could be. I believe there was a lead that it could have been one of Teresa's coworkers, but it turned out it was not him. And investigators even tracked someone down out of state that they really thought was their suspect, but it wasn't him either. So clearly the killer was not someone who was close to Teresa, or I think someone in her life could have identified him. 
More likely, this was someone on the periphery of Teresa's life, possibly even a stalker. In my opinion, the stalker theory is a strong possibility. I go back to how Teresa felt like someone could have been coming into her home and the incident where she felt that she was followed out of work. The killer seemed familiar with her routine and the layout of her home. Maybe this person had been watching her for some time. Maybe they even lived in her apartment complex. So I think that's what this case boils down to. Either that that theory or someone was hired to kill her and that's why they can't be connected to her because she actually didn't know them. And touching on the hitman theory, I was thinking again about the 6.30 to 7.30 time frame when police believe Teresa was killed and how it was strange. But then, well, in general, if you were a hitman and the person who hired you was going to be questioned by police, likely because they were close to the victim, they might ask you to do it during a time when they had a solid alibi. Because if you do it at 2 a.m., for example, most people are asleep and it's hard to prove that. There was no guarantee that this, if if this were a hitman, there was no guarantee that he was going to leave DNA behind that could rule people out in Teresa's life. And if this were a hitman, he wouldn't want his DNA to be left behind. But that was just a thought I had about that time because I kept going back. If that's really the time in which Teresa was killed, it just seems strange to me, but it's not impossible. It sounds like it could have been an amateur hitman who didn't, who wasn't really that great at being a hitman. Yeah, I mean, maybe someone who's not really a hitman. Someone just yeah. asked him to so, do this. Yeah, and someone just hired randomly. He did it. Yeah. yeah. I guess not randomly, but someone someone random that was hired, I should say. Because, I mean, they left behind a, an obvious crime scene that could be pieced together to formulate a pretty good story of what happened. They left behind their DNA. They haphazardly tried to clean everything up, which is weird. So, yeah, I'm I'm not ruling out that someone was hired to do it. But at least if someone was hired, I would think that they would be easier to pin down for this just a little bit easier than if this were, say, a stalker because they would likely have some connection to whoever it was that hired this person to kill Teresa. Whereas with the stalker, again, you would think maybe they had some connection, but it could have just been someone who saw her walking her dog or, like I said, lived in the apartment complex she, she lived in. I would really like to know if they tracked down everybody who lived there at that time to see if they matched that description or if they had those kinds of records when she was first killed. It could have been a frequent guest at the hotel that she worked at, right? Who stayed there frequently and maybe tried to make a pass at her a few times and got rejected. Now they're extremely upset. I know. I think there's so much more on the table when we know that this is not someone in Teresa's life that anybody knew about. That really threw things for me because I know early on we talked about maybe this was someone she knew and she let into her apartment. That's kind of what her dad thought. But then it comes out that nobody knew who this guy was. If this composite is accurate, this who are we talking about here? Like This guy could be anywhere. And that's why... I want our listeners to to go look and see if he looks familiar to anyone. But as of right now, that's what they have to work with. But I, I think it's 
it's better than we have in a lot of cases. That's what I would say. And that's where the case stands today. Teresa's loved ones have conveyed their belief that perhaps her case or the Parabon Snapchat hasn't reached the right individual. They want to garner more exposure for her case. And this is what compelled me to cover Teresa's murder. It was evident to me throughout this case that Teresa was a wonderful person and she had a group of wonderful people surrounding her and her family and friends. I was sad to learn that Teresa's father passed away in 2021, never having received answers. Her family created a scholarship fund at the high school Teresa graduated from to honor her memory, which a number of students have benefited from, and overall, thousands of dollars have been gifted. Her family sees it as a positive way to remember Teresa. Also, I was very happy to hear that Teresa's family took her dog in after her murder, which I have a feeling is what Teresa would have wanted. She would have wanted her dog, Frankie, to be in good hands. Although it's been almost 20 years since Teresa was murdered, of the cases we've covered, I have to say this one ranks really high, in my opinion, as far as its solvability. And I wouldn't be surprised if this is the next case we are doing an update episode on. If you have information related to Teresa's murder, please contact the Las Vegas Metro Police Department at 702-828-3521, or you can contact the cold case voicemail line at 702-828-8973, or email coldcasehomicide at lvmpd.com. Thank you all for joining us today, and we will be back next week with a new case. Bye. Bye.